evening, Acts chapter 20. Looking at the book of Acts, it gives us the history of early Christianity, and it's our, really, probably the best way for us to understand what real Christianity is. Because if anything has the right to claim authentic Christianity, I think it would be Acts Christianity. Uh, Paul, tonight we're going to get to here, and we're going to start about the middle of the chapter, but Paul is, after three years of ministering in Ephesus, uh, is ready now to go to Jerusalem, and he gathers the leaders of the Ephesus church to say farewell to them. This is that famous farewell speech of Paul to these Ephesian elders, and usually uh, this passage is used, correctly so, as a job description for the ministers or leaders of a local church. But largely, uh, in a larger case, I would say that it is given to all of us as Christians as well. And so I think here in this pa passage we have the uh, address given by Paul uh, to tell us what kind of church we should be. What's Paul telling us about what the gospel church should look like? What should the gospel ministry look like? And that's what we want to look at this evening. Start with me here in verse number 17. And from uh, Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. It will never come to him. He said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia after what manner I would have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Now jump down to verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, <coughs> that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one night and day with tears. Now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to him and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring you ought to support the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Father, I pray you'd help us this evening now as we look at this text. Draw, draw from it what ye help to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start here in verse number 20. Uh, we look at a pair of what, uh, what, what we want to look tonight as we go through this is truth, tears, and tithes. Uh, the three different things I want to pull from this passage. Uh, truth, tears, and tithes. But looking first of all, truth. Uh, how I kept back nothing, verse 20, that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house. Look at that hair that you have there, showed you and taught you. By life and by lip, you could say, the Apostle Paul taught folks. By exposition and by example, 
Paul was a living epistle, known and read of all men. Now, why is this so important? He tells in verse 30, Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul's job is to guard and to protect and to preach and to teach the truth. That is also, I believe, what the local church is here to do. We are to teach people who God is. Verse 27 calls it all the counsel of God. Now, if you want to know uh, who I am, you can't just believe anything and everything you hear about me. Uh, you, for example, somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I like to think of you as an Olympic bodybuilder. That was Jeremy, just if you want to know who, who said that to me. But uh, I have three responses to that. First of all, I have nothing inherently against Olympic bodybuilders. I applaud their efforts, a lot of work. Second, this is a free country. You can believe that about me. Nobody's going to arrest you or fine you. But third, and the important thing, here's the shocker, that's not the truth. All right? In fact, I'm just a regular bodybuilder. Amen. So... Uh, but no, you want to know the truth about, or you want to know about me, you need to know the truth about me. You don't want to know God, you need to know the truth about God. That's what we have the Word of God for. We learn who He is, what He desires, what He expects of us. We learn about His holiness, His omniscience, His, His omnipotence, all those things that we learn about God. Now, this is even true for yourself. Do you want to know the truth about you, yourself? We need to understand that too, biblically. Modern thinking says you're only a body, nothing more. You're just an animal. Uh, there's no soul, nothing but the physical, what you see. That's all you are. That's what modern philosophy tells us. But the Bible says, no, you're more complex than that. You're a soul and a body. Science tells us that we're only, only, uh, we're only a product of evolutionary biology. You are only a product of your culture and your environment. The Bible again says, no, no, you are made in the image of God. They can't both be right. And so the truth is very, very important. I like reading books about uh, one of the ways that we defend Christianity and defend the existence of God and all those is absolute truth and absolute morality. And truth is so important because in our day, they have seemed to make truth just whatever people want to think it is. What's true for you might not be true for me. No, truth is true, and we need to recognize that. One of these philosophies that we're talking about here is, uh, that modern thought versus the Bible is the truth and unless you know the truth about who you are you're never going to really realize who you are and unless you know the truth about God you're never going to know who God is so would you agree along with me truth is very very important and Paul was all about teaching the truth look what he says I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you he's saying here I preached <coughs> and taught wholeheartedly. I did not hold back. I wasn't afraid uh, to offend or to somebody to get upset. And can I tell you that biblical truth will always offend someone somewhere. Somebody will always get offended by biblical truth. There's no place, there's no group that you can bring biblical truth to that someone won't be offended or upset by it. Now, it's the church's job to lift up the Bible and the truth of the Bible even though it might offend somebody. Now, we're not to go out and look to offend people. We're not to be offensive, but we're also not to uh, be afraid to hold up the truth, even if it does offend. Will it offend people that we make a bold statement that homosexuality is a sin against the holy God? 
Oh, it'll offend some people when we say that. Will it offend people? A few weeks ago on a Sunday morning I was preaching and, and mentioned that uh, living together before marriage is sin. It's wrong. Now there was people in here that were in the middle of doing that. I, I didn't mean to offend. I don't want to offend. But we got to uphold the truth, don't we? Even if it offends. And uh, so just don't be an offensive Christian, but also don't be afraid to give the truth. We can't hold back. We can't hesitate. And that's what Paul said. Now, there are two parts to this, though, <coughs> that I want you to catch. I kept back nothing, he said. And the second part is profitable unto you. We have to convey truth, both unhesitatingly, but we also have to convey it helpfully. All oh, this is so important. For us. I know some churches, and you probably too do, do as well, who are very good at the kept back nothing part. And they'll rip and tear into you. They'll tell you everything that's wrong with you. They'll blast you. They'll hold nothing back. But they're not very helpful. I don't know if you've ever known churches like that. I knew one church somewhere that if a lady, just a visiting lady off the street, uh, somebody that just came in to visit the church showed up in slacks, she would be escorted into a changing room before she was allowed to go into the auditorium. All right, that's a little bit ridiculous. And that's, uh, again, uh, that's really good on the kept back nothing part. I mean, there are some churches that are ready to uh, rear back and tell you what's wrong with you, but that's not being helpful. That's not profitable unto you. So keep those two things in mind. He kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. Ephesians 4.15, the Bible says, Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, within our group, and when I say our group, I'm talking about independent fundamental Baptist churches, uh, within even our group, you can get into some major extremes. Uh, you could, I want to look at two extremes very quickly uh, because they can both be found in our camp, if you want to use that word, but they're extremes that we can get caught up in. One of them is compassion without truth. And again, we're talking right here about the importance of truth. We need to... Put a value on truth. There are <coughs> people that put a high value on compassion without truth. This group is led by emotions. Uh, it's all about love. Turn your Bibles, keep your finger in Acts here, but turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians, if you would, chapter 5. There's an example here, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much named in the Gentiles, that no one should have his father's wife. Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. Okay, you know what that's talking about right there? They are puffed up. In other words, they're proud of themselves because of their tolerance. They tolerate it. They tolerated sin. They did not deal with it, and they have done that this, who done this deed might not be taken away from among you. So they didn't deal with the sin, and they're proud of it. They're proud of their tolerance, because it's all about love. It's not about truth. I'm not diminishing love. I think we talked about love in detail this morning, uh, recognizing how great the love of Christ is, but uh, that is not, should not ever be at the cost of truth. Truth, or sin, takes a back seat in these types of churches. They accept uh, all who meet. Their motto would be, come as you are, leave as you were. Uh, this group of people will not deal with the root issue of sin. They will not confront sin, will not preach against sin. I'm talking about compassion without truth. I am all for compassion, 
but we need to balance it with truth. This group will produce shallow churches and shallow Christians. Their churches will be feel-good, uplifting, motivational speakers rather than preachers. Now, I've read this statement. I don't remember who made it, but it is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than to speak falsehood that comforts and then kills. That's good, isn't it? It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. So the answer is not in going the extreme of compassion without truth. The other extreme would be truth without compassion. Uh, They will have a message packaged in harshness. They will not connect with those who are not like them. And they will have no desire to connect with those who are not like them. Turn to Luke chapter 9, keeping again your finger in Acts, if you want to use those verses there still. But Luke chapter 9, <clears throat> I always get a little bit of a chuckle when I read this passage. <clears throat> in verse 54, you're going to, verse 53, here you see truth without compassion. And they, talking about the village and Samaritans, did not receive him, did not receive Christ, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Now, what's that? Imagine knocking on a door, and they find out you're there to talk about spiritual things. They slam the door on you, and Pastor Forsberg and I walk away from the house, and as we're walking up the sidewalk, we call down a comet from heaven to blow up their house. I mean, that's what they wanted to do here. That's truth with no compassion. Jesus, look what Jesus said, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of the spirit you're of, no manner of spirit you're of. Look what they wanted to do simply because they hadn't received them. Now, let's call fire from heaven. And Jesus basically tells them, my goodness, man, do you even know what I'm all about? They had the wrong spirit. A bad spirit hinders the working of God. Now, we can stand on the truths of this Bible. We can stand on the doctrines within it. And we can be mean, hateful, spiteful, harsh Christians. And I don't think there's any place for that. I'm talking about now truth without compassion. We need to have compassion as well. There needs to be a balance there. And you can be, you can have this bad spirit. You know you can be saved and have a bad spirit. And you not even know that you have it. Jesus said to his disciples, you don't even know what spirit you have there. This group, truth without compassion, are very demanding that you be just like them. Remember the motto, come as you are, stay as you were? Here, their motto is, come as you are and we'll reject you. (laughs) We don't want to have anything to do with anybody that's different than us. Because they are right and they have chapter and verse to prove it. Truth without compassion. There needs to be a balance there, doesn't there? Compassion without truth isn't the answer. Truth without compassion isn't the answer. Now, Jesus was the perfect example of truth and compassion balanced perfectly. Turn now, if you would, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And verse number 13. Jesus asks a question here. He came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I am? That I, the Son of Man, am. He got three answers, 
and in this I think we can learn some things, they named three people who were associated with Jesus, or, or that people associated Jesus with, I should say, I said that wrong. So they said three people, look what the Bible says, verse 14. And they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, each one of these is very instructive. And it's interesting because these three men were nothing alike in their spirit. Let's look at all three of them if we would. You have John the Baptist. He was sound as a rock in doctrine. I mean, no one preached like John the Baptist. He thundered the truth no matter who was listening. One day he was baptizing and preaching and the ministerial association showed up. Uh, that's not what they called him in the Bible. They called him the Pharisees, but... Anyway, we'll move on there. John said in Matthew 3, 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Look, just stop and think here for a second. We look at Pharisees and Sadducees, and we get an inner growl. Ugh, Pharisees. It wasn't the time then. You saw a Pharisee, man. You got out of his way. You... You honored them. They were the holiest of the holy. Man, you wished you could be as righteous as a Pharisee. And yet John had no problem ripping into them. Some say, you're John the Baptist, they told Jesus. You know why? Jesus didn't mince words either. He preached just like John the Baptist did. He also rolled back his sleeves and preached the word as it was. He said in Matthew 23, 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither do ye go in yourselves neither suffer them that are entering to go in. Jesus said, "You don't. Oh, not only don't you go to heaven, you're not going to go, but then you keep other people from going there too. Whew, that's strong preaching. Jesus called him out. He thundered the truth when it was necessary. So much say, so that he asked the question, whom do men say that I am? Some say thou art John the Baptist. And then he goes on. Uh, here it says, some say thou art Elias. Elijah was known for his miracles. He caused the rain to cease for three and a half years, or, or God did, uh, by his word, 1 Corinthians 17. He was fed by ravens, 1 Corinthians 17. Uh, he, had the, he was the one that the barrel of meal and the cruise of oil never ran out. Uh, he was the one that resurrected the widow's son. He called fire down from heaven on the altar in 1 Kings 18, and on and on. There's a lot of miracles Elijah was involved in. It's obvious why Jesus would be likened to Elijah. He also did a lot of miracles. Whom do men say that I am? Some say thou art Elias. Makes sense. And then some say you're Jeremiah. Who was Jeremiah? Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah 9.1, Oh, that my head were waters, and that mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He was known for his empathy to those that he preached to. All through his life we see him weeping before God on behalf of his people weeping for the people on behalf uh, before the people on behalf of God. He warns Judah of judgment if they will not repent from their idolatry. He pleads with God to spare his people. He weeps because no one will listen. Some say you're, Eli uh, you're Jeremiah. Luke 19, Jesus also wept. Remember, he's coming into Jerusalem. It's actually Palm Sunday. He's riding the donkey into cheers and, and the crowds are waving branches crying Hosanna to the king and he comes in and and uh, just as he's coming into the view of Jerusalem unnoticed to everyone else the Bible says in verse 41 and when he was come near he beheld the city and wept over it 
like the prophet Jeremiah, before him Jesus weeps. He understands that people wanted him by their own definition, but they wanted him in their box. They didn't want him as he actually was. Not so much different today, by the way. To whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They named those three people. What a balance. John the Baptist, true. Elijah, works, his miracles. Jeremiah, his compassion, his heart. Oh, if we could only have the balance that Jesus had. Jesus had a great balance. It seems that if man, it seems like mankind is prone to extremes. We swing one way or we swing the other way. Jesus stood for truth. It was important to him. It was the all-important thing, and yet, at the same time, he had an authentic love for sinners. The story we had this morning, what a blessed story that is. This woman, the Pharisee, was ready to throw her out. He nothing but harsh thoughts toward her, and Jesus forgave her, told her to go and sin no more. What a blessing that is. Now, this is what I think we see with Paul here in Acts chapter 20. Yes, I kept back nothing, but at the same time, that was profitable unto you. He said in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. But we have to be led by and lead others with the truth. The truth should be important, but we should have the right balance in how we present it. Uh, kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. And then we, he mentioned several times in this text, tears. Verse 19, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and many tears temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Look down verse 31. He says, By the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, I was with you three years, constantly talking to you about the truth, but weeping all the way. He set an example uh, for them of godly sorrow. They had frequently seen his tears, and that's what he's talking about here. He had wept over their sin. He had wept with them in their sadness. He had gone forth weeping, bearing precious seed. He had set before them an example of patient suffering. The Jews had had persecuted him incessantly. I'm sure that there's probably much more than is even recorded in the Bible, the things that they did to try to stop Paul. But he says he was serving the Lord with all humility of mind. That word humility means a deep sense of one's moral littleness. That's really what humility is. A deep sense of our own littleness. In the day that Paul is writing this Greco-Roman culture here, this is a negative word. It's always used negatively. In the Bible, though, the word or a form of the word is used 200 times, and it's almost always a virtue. Being humble. Humility. Humility is... Not a virtue in the eyes of the world, but humility is always a virtue in the eyes of God. Now, why is humility such a good thing? Remember, Paul was in a shame and honor culture here, and yet he had no problem displaying humility. Uh, here's why weakness or the recognition of weakness is a good thing, and Paul clearly describes it when he talks about the thorn in the flesh, because it is in our weakness that his strength is exhibited. It's in our in our own weakness, that God is glorified. That's why Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, would I suffer for Christ's sake. I'm careful. I'm not sure exactly what word goes. Sometimes I'm afraid if I say part of the verse wrong, you think I'm giving you some kind of heretical text. I'm not. I just, my, my brain might not be working right. If we're committed to the truth, 
do you realize how easy it is for truth to become oppressive? It becomes aggressive. It, becomes, it can become nasty. And I don't ever want that to be the case. Any church that says we have the truth and other people don't will become an agent of oppression. Unless that truth, along with that truth, comes some tears. We ought to be have compassion and tears along with it. Uh, we ought to, and we will, by the way, if we recognize our own weakness. See, the problem with, with this attitude is the same problem Simon had we talked about this morning. Overconfidence in himself. Thinking he was better than he really was. And so, uh, if we have the humility that we should have, then the tears or the compassion that comes along with the truth will have the right balance. Take some humility. And then I, uh, the last one here is ties. Look at the very end. It's a very touching scene here. 36, when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore, fell on Paul's neck, and kissed him. This is friendship. And we need these ties of friendship. Chapter 21 begins with uh, the next chapter when they... And when it came to pass after that we were gotten away, or we were gotten from them, gotten from or to tear away. They had to tear themselves away from these folks. They were not just associates. They were dear, dear friends. How much better to serve God in the yoke of godly friendship. Amen? Serving God together. Uh, it makes the load easier. Years ago, a British publication offered a prize for the best definition of a friend. Many were turned in. Here's just a few of them. Uh, actually, there's thousands of answers, but here's a few of them. One who multiplies joys, divides grief, and whose honesty is inviolable. One who understands our silence. It's a good friend, isn't it? A volume of sympathy bound in cloth. Another one, a watch that beats true for all time and never runs down. The winning definition was a friend is the one who comes in when the whole world goes down. Friends are precious. And Paul had them. Co-laborers. What a touching scene there in verse 37. Paul had long since won their hearts. He had a gift for making lasting friends. What a blessing that friends in the ministry are. Yes, truth is the thing. We need to hold on to the truth of the Word of God and not alter from it. Doctrine is important. That is something that we want to always stay right uh, aligned with, the doctrine and truth of the Word of God. There will be times of tears, as we see with Paul as well. And I believe it's almost impossible without the ties of friendship that are in the saddle with you. I thank God for the friends that I have in this ministry here. Uh, the dearest people in my life are you folks that sit in this pew, and I really mean that, in these chairs. But uh, I, it's just how impossible would it be to do any work for God without the ties that we have in the ministry. So those are some things that I wanted to point out tonight. And uh, I, we were talking tonight. I had a great discipleship lesson about uh, getting along with.